This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week we have on our show a person that really needs no introduction, Dr. Farzad Mostashari. Farzad is truly a leader in the value-based care movement as CEO of Alidade. He works with physician-led ACOs, and those ACOs are getting results. Alidade has created a national standard for the rest of the independent primary care community in the country to follow. With Dr. Mostashari, the results are never about the success of his company, however. They're really about the success of the entire country. And he's really, Daniel, someone I see as a servant leader in this movement to value-based care. You know, Eric, I really agree. Dr. Mostashari is a great leader, and he's been nationally recognized as such with his work in healthcare transformation. And more recently, we've seen his leadership during this time of national crisis with COVID-19. And his leadership has been extraordinary. You know, he's taken it on himself to lead a crusade to preserve the viability of independent physicians. And he's become the leading voice for primary care in our country. And he views this fight for PCP survival in terms of both economic and moral necessity. Well, let's go ahead and transition over to our interview with Dr. Farzad Mostashari as he joins us today in this race to value. Farzad, thanks for joining us today. You've been such an inspiration to me personally, and it's a great honor to be speaking with you today. Thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to talking. Well, I thought a great place to start our conversation today would be with an analogy. I attended a presentation you made at a national conference in 2014, right when you were starting Alidade. And I must say that talk left an indelible impression on me. In that presentation, you talked about how out of control healthcare spending really is, and you compared it to Niagara Falls, you know, the torrent of water that goes over the crest of the falls. I mean, it's about 6 million cubic feet per minute, and you equated that to healthcare spending since we spend 6 million per minute on healthcare and how that flow of funding is specifically in tune with sickness, not health. You talked about how in a fee-for-service system, we have everyone waiting at the bottom of the falls with a bucket trying to catch those poor, sick patients that come over. 
And since that broken healthcare system is exquisitely tuned to react after patients get sick and money is made once we fail the patients, after they go over the waterfall, you talked about how it's just, it's morally wrong. And, and the most powerful part of that talk was, was you saying that we have this movement towards value-based care and we've got to catch the patients before they go over the waterfall. And you posited at that time that it's going to be these new players, these innovators and disruptors that are going to be at the headwaters of the new model because they're going to be more nimble and agile and unconflicted. And they're not worried about leakage and demand destruction. And, all. and when you gave that talk, Allidade was one of those new players on the scene. And in the years past, Allidade's become one of the nation's largest and most successful enabler of physician-led ACOs. I mean, you have 800 practice partnerships, 7,800 providers, you're in 31 states, 1.2 million patients. And in the short lifespan of your company, you've generated $360 million in healthcare cost savings. You're at a place now where 90% of your company's revenue is derived from shared savings. You just went through a Series D raise. Congratulations on that. A lot of thing, great things are happening. You've given $100 million to primary care physicians. I think you're going to be targeting $100 million just this year and handing out checks. And it's a great story. And I wanted to ask you, Farzad, can you maybe talk about what it's been like for you just in transitioning from government to the startup world? Can you tell us more about Allidade's journey? And then just really, I wanted to ask you, what have you learned from your time in the public sector that helped you create a business model where what's good for Allidade is truly what's good for our nation and helping us win this race to value. Oh, such a great framing. Thank you. Thank you. And I remember that talk and I still feel to this day, the moral outrage at seeing all the foam and, and energy at the bottom of the waterfall, all these companies waiting, waiting for the patient to have a stroke. And then we will do anything. We will pay any amount of money. Once you're fortunate enough to have had a stroke, we'll pay for your neuro ICU, we'll pay for the intervention, we'll pay for the balloon, the high-tech interventions, and we'll then pay for your wheelchair. Uh, but we won't pay for a home blood pressure monitor cuff so that you control your blood pressure and you don't have that stroke in the first place. That is, as you said, not just expensive and irrational, it's immoral. So I spent 15 years as a public health policymaker, public health worker, epidemiologist. I've spent 10 years at the New York City Health Department asking the question, how do we save the most lives? And my first incorrect answer <laughs> to that question was that, oh, this is an information problem. We don't, we're not controlling people's blood pressure because we just can't know. If you go to the average primary care office, they, they, they have no way of knowing what percent of their patients have high blood pressure. So <laughs> we need to put in place electronic health records throughout the whole country that measure blood pressure, that know what the medications the patient's on, have decision support, have quality measures built in. And I spent 10 years of my life doing that, rolling out electronic health records. And we went, you know, we succeeded in the, the battle and we lost the war because blood pressure control didn't budge after we implemented all of these technologies. My next incorrect diagnosis was, oh, well, we need to stand shoulder to shoulder with practices and help them redesign their workflows. And so we spent a billion dollars on the Regional Extension Center program, my co-founder Matt and I, getting 140,000 primary care docs to go from paper to electronic health records, rewire their workflows. And it didn't improve blood pressure control. 
And it was kind of my third <laughs> try at this where I said, okay, dummy, <laughs> the money is not everything, but financial incentives for organizations matter. And we can't win this public health battle of how do we save the most lives if we, in a very clear-eyed way, don't say, how can we create incentives so that private profit creates public good? And that, to me, is the job of good policy. And with the, the various risk-sharing programs out there, which started in Medicare Advantage, and then the ACO programs and shared savings models, and now quite common kind of value-based models, that's exactly what you can do. And we built our company. It's not an accident <laughs> that what's good for the patients and good for society is good for the doctors. We went looking for a business model where that would be true, and it's working. Farzad, I, I love what you said and how you've built the successful business by serving the public good and, and making your primary care practice partners successful. Eric mentioned how your sharing of the vision of Alidate all those years ago stirred something within him. And, and we started ACLC a year or two after you founded Alidate. And you left a similar impression on me as well. When I was in the early stages of my learning about ACOs and starting my role with the ACLC, I remember reading an article you wrote with our co-founder, Dr. Mark McClellan, about the paradox of primary care physician leadership. I couldn't get over how primary care accounts for only 5% of the spending, yet it has such important implications for downstream medical care that a group of 100 primary care physicians could ostensibly influence a billion dollars in healthcare spending. And although primary care Physicians have such power in a value-based world. The fee-for-service model still reimburses providers more for procedural care than it does for the time spent on the necessary cognitive care that really keeps patients healthy. I'm connected with your approach to value-based care because you believe that independent primary care physicians should be the force for change. And staying independent as a PCP is almost impossible these days, especially in a hyper-competitive market where there's a feeding frenzy of health systems payers, PE-backed physician aggregators, all of these looking to consolidate primary care providers. And at a national level, we've been seeing a mass consolidation of providers. And I question whether it's the best way to unleash the power of physician-led primary care. So I'm interested in this concept of primary care consolidation versus independence. I want to ask you about what all this capital investment in providers means for the future of primary care. Should we worry about the corporatization of primary care? For the independent financially distressed PCP that's trying to survive, what should he or she be thinking about in terms of financial viability? And how should that person balance the options of selling out to a, a PE firm, a payer-backed subsidiary, or a health system versus joining an independent network that's partnered with Alidate to share in risk? Yeah, great question. Let me first maybe put a little bit of a contrarian perspective on this issue the narrative that you just said is utterly familiar. And in fact, we ourselves in the, the primary care advocacy community continually make those points that we need to pay more for leveling the playing field with independent primary care versus hospital or system owned, that we are undervaluing primary care, that we have a shortage of primary care, and that we're seeing many attacks on independence much consolidation, and that there are new actors now, not just health systems buying up practices, but also Optum and private equity firms getting into the business. 
That all having been said, you know, I'm a big believer in data and evidence. And if you actually look at the data, the independent primary care practice has been incredibly resilient, even through COVID. And we still have more than half of primary care in this country delivered not by health systems or PE firms, but by practices who are independent. And what do I mean by independent is they can do what they believe is in the patient's best interest without worrying that their obligation to the patient conflicts with their obligation to the corporation. That to me, that clinical autonomy is the key here. Because if the doc can think about what's best for the patient and do that, then it all works. But if they feel like I have to, my, I owe it to the organization who I get my paycheck from to send the referral here or to do this extra test, that doesn't work. So the data actually shows remarkably little change in hospital employment of physicians. What we do see is more physicians going to work for other physicians, which is okay. We do see obviously a robust sector in terms of, of health centers and that serve one out of every 13 people with primary care in this country. And we are seeing that these organizations are more successful in value-based care models. And once you enter into that, the risk of being snatched up really goes down a lot. So 800 practices that we've worked with over the past seven years, we've had 1% loss to hospital acquisition, 1%. And many of the practices we recruit used to be part of hospital clinically integrated networks. So I actually see this as being uh, not a doom and gloom, oh, the, you know, the, the, the air is leaking out of the balloon and, and it's inevitable. I see this as a very dynamic process and I see remarkable resilience in the independent primary care market. Well, Farzad, I wanted to bring up that talk you did years ago that I referenced earlier. You know, I went to you after that talk, and at the time, I was a CEO of an ACO out in West Texas, just getting started. And you know, you told me, "Man, you're doing God's work." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and that was powerful. You know, like your words meant so much to me at that time. It inspires me to this day, and I can't help but think, you know, it really takes a village to make value-based care work. And we're all doing our part to lead a movement for this greater good and this higher purpose. So I wanted to talk about this concept of the race to value actually being a social movement, perhaps not unlike, I don't know, civil rights or gay marriage. I think about movements and how in leading a movement, it really comes down to having effective storytelling and how those stories can revitalize communities of people. You know, that Native American proverb about tell me the facts I'll learn, tell me the truth I believe, but tell me a story and it's going to live in my heart forever. And I just can't help but think about how storytelling can awaken the power to win and value-based care. And this movement is so dependent on independent primary care physicians who are generally incredibly passionate, as you spoke about earlier. They're committed to helping others, but also, I mean, there's a reality here that they're overwhelmed, they're downtrodden, perhaps they're even defeated. And, you know, there was a study I, I read years ago that said it, you know, it takes 21.7 hours per day for a PCP to accomplish everything that he or she is expected to do for patient care and also maintaining a business. So these PCPs were already overworked, they're devalued, they're marginalized by the system, and then boom, COVID happens. And if you look at all the COVID physician deaths 
that have happened in the last year, 27% have been primary care docs. And, you know, these are doctors that lack PPE. They're first at the point of care during the pandemic. It seems like as a society, we're continually neglecting primary care. And I just think it's an absolute national disgrace. So far as I'm worried about the moral injury that's happening to primary care physicians and in the PCP community. For all those leaders out there that are listening to this podcast, I mean, what, what can you tell them about how we can give primary care a more prominent position in American healthcare so we have a fighting chance to fully be transformed towards value? And, and also in recognizing the power of effective storytelling to create change, what story can these PCPs hear that actually get them to believe in a brighter tomorrow for the profession? Oh, what a great question. When COVID happened, we didn't think about what this was going to mean for the business, for our business. We thought about what this was going to mean for our practices. Like there are heroes, literally, like we, our first value at Allidate service, and it's no accident that so many folks at Allidate come from public service or mission service veterans. So we, we sprang into action immediately saying, what do you need? How can we help fill the gap that society has, has created? The, the supply chain for small practices completely broke down. And so we became experts in, you know, customs importation of masks, right? And, and shepherding a million dollars worth of PPE through customs and distributing it for free to our practices so they could survive. So they're not literally like taping masks to their face. And while they're going to see patients in communities that have horrible rates of exposure to them, where we're seeing them get sick, their staff get sick, need to be quarantined. I mean, it, it was unbelievable, the neglect of our system. And, and all the attention goes to, quote, frontline workers, but not recognizing um, the importance of primary care as being frontline workers. And then testing and like the inability for our practices to get data on their patients, to get access to inability of our practices, to get access to tests, even for themselves at times. And now with vaccine, with the loan programs that didn't have a specific room in those loan programs for primary care. So throughout this all, we fought for the practices. We stood up 150 practices on telehealth in a weekend. We provided that telehealth for free. We help them navigate the policies and the regulations and the payments and the loans. And our practices survived and they continue to serve their communities. And where they're getting, while you know, countries' policy doesn't seem to have the primacy of primary care in mind, their communities do reward them. Their communities do see them as leaders in their communities and as the trusted sources. So I think, again, to focus on, on the positive, if you're a leader who's working on value-based care, serve those practices. They're the heroes, and everything else will fall into place. We had, you know, in a year when we couldn't visit the practices, we had our highest net promoter scores ever. In a year where we couldn't visit the practices, we had the highest levels of use of our technology ever, 84% daily active use of the technology. In the year where we couldn't visit prospect practices. We had our largest growth year ever. We had 50% growth year over year in our number of practices we support. In a year where you know, it was hard to see patients, we had our you know, best savings year ever with 95% of our ACOs 
uh, were two or more years, uh, three or more years had savings. It is remarkable what happens when you do the right thing. And, and for me, it really helped our company figure out who we are, what makes us tick, what is our identity? And, it, and that identity is we serve these practices. Farzad, as we're talking about COVID, I just have to say how impressed I was with Aladdin's response early on in the pandemic. And your leadership during that time of national crisis and, and uncertainty was absolutely extraordinary. With the economic calamity facing primary care in 2020, you spent considerable time contributing to the national dialogue and the plight of primary care, and were actively engaged in national level policy discussions to secure a lifeline for independent primary care practices by proposing that the federal government immediately dispense $15 billion to PCPs, roughly what CMS spends on primary care over a four-month period. On top of that, your leaders at Allidate hit the ground running in those early days of the pandemic and ensured, as you've mentioned, that all of your practices had access to a common telehealth platform. And you told us you actually rolled out telehealth to 150 practices over an entire weekend. So your leadership of Allidate during that time of crisis is superlative and and it's an absolute case study in change management in difficult times. Moreover, though, the beneficiaries of Allidate's technology leadership extends beyond your clients as you democratized your telehealth deployment knowledge by releasing an invaluable toolkit for the betterment of the entire industry. Yeah. So can you share with our listeners what it was like for you, the Allidate team, and your physician partners during those early days in the pandemic? And now that we're a full year into the pandemic and know a lot more about what we're dealing with, what lessons can be applied post-pandemic to actually reshape our healthcare delivery system in response to this black swan event? On March 7th, I went on a website that I had helped create for the New York City Health Department that tracked emergency room visits in the city. And I saw a market increase in ER visits for influenza-like illness in New York City at a time when there were two confirmed cases of COVID in New York City. And I knew then that there weren't two cases, there were tens of thousands of cases in New York City and that it was spreading and doubling every three days. I was terrified. I was uh, trained as an epidemic intelligence service officer, a medical epidemiologist at the, the CDC. I'd spent 10 years at the New York City Health Department. I, I could see what was coming down the train tracks at us fast. And so we shut down the office that week. We told our uh, field staff to switch to remote only work. We sent out 100,000 text messages and over 100,000 postcards to the most vulnerable patients, telling them to stay home and stay safe. And as you mentioned, we stood up telehealth for our practices. We secured PPE for the practices. We secured access to loan programs and payment programs and began advocating at raising the alarm about the, the need to support primary care at a time when fee-for-service visits dried up and the need for primary care was never greater. During the middle of the pandemic, the idea that we could have practices shutting their doors or going out of business just highlighted the insanity of a payment system for primary care that we've been kludging along and, and kind of somehow making it work, fitting what we believe is longitudinal patient-centered care into E&M codes and 99213 documentation. And somehow we kind of tottered along until this event. And it just crystallized how 
fee-for-service is not the right way to pay primary care, and it's not the safe way to run a business if you're a primary care practice. So I think among the legacies, I hope, of COVID, I'm a very optimistic and positive person, so I'll look on the positives. One is, I think it showed us that the healthcare system can change. Like the amount of change that we saw in healthcare in a few short weeks was more than, you know, in a decade previous on, on things like telehealth. So healthcare can change. We can sprint. We can do high intensity interval training, you know? And I think that's a great lesson when we're, when we're caught in the, oh, this can't happen. We can't do this. It's like, no, we actually can. The second is the recognition that primary care is primary care. It doesn't have to be an in-person visit for 15 minutes with you know, the review of the following things. Primary care can be phone-based, it can be telehealth, it can be group visits, it can be nurse visits, it can be care management. It's all primary care. And we need to find ways of paying for primary care as holistically rather than in, in piecemeal. And third, those primary care practices who were engaged in value-based payment models like ours got $200,000, $250,000 checks for the work that they had done preventing hospitalizations and bad things happening to people, not billing 50 bucks at a time. And that was a lifesaver for those practices. And as I mentioned, we, we had our you know, fastest growth year ever during a year where we couldn't visit practices. So I'm optimistic that some of the legacy of COVID is actually gonna be strengthening of our belief that healthcare can change a strengthening of the conviction that we need to move away from fee-for-service and a strengthening of understanding that primary care is about the relationship uh, between a, a, a practice and the patient. It's not about 99213 uh, visits. That's not, that's not the product of primary care. Well, indeed, healthcare can change. And I wanted to ask you about the state of the value economy and in your assessment on current health policy as it's looking to make the seismic shift in our industry. You know, the Medicare shared savings program and the last performance year on record, you know, it had record level net savings to the Medicare trust fund. I think along the lines of 1.1 billion and the program since its inception has saved over 1.9 billion. CMMI and their APM portfolio, on the other hand, it's serving 26 million patients, but they aren't producing the necessary financial and quality impacts to justify expanding most of those pilots. And, you know, if you look at their 54 total models, only five have ever produced statistically significant savings. And it looks like direct contracting is going to take off in a big way. And it's using many of the same levers as Medicare Advantage. And it seems like we are, as a nation, really mustering that political will to stay the course and the progression of downside risk payment models. However, Farzad, I wanted to ask you about, you know, we're seeing these delays and these pullbacks in certain new APMs like the serious ill population component of primary care first or the geo direct contracting model, which was going to start next year. That's under review. The, the kidney care choices APM rollout that was set to start this year. It's been pushed back to 2022. What does one make of all this? I mean, is health policy, Farzad, heading in the right direction and moving fast enough in this race to value? Absolutely. I guess I'm a little conflicted in that a lot of the folks who are in these policy positions now are people I've worked with in the past and I have just tremendous respect for. Liz Fowler is, is a brilliant and talented 
and experienced policy hand. And I think she's going to do great things at CMMI. Here's what I think is, is the common threat from policy, what, what your listeners should expect. I think we're going to see less of a proliferation of, of different models and more of a scaling of models that work. And the data that you cited actually contains within it the seed for that. So, you know, as you said, most of the savings, the most successful model out there has been actually the Medicare Shared Savings Program, not part of the CMMI portfolio, but a permanent part written into law in the Center for Medicare. And within that, those 10 million lives, the 4 million lives and physician-led ACOs have produced more savings than the other 30 million APM lives combined. So what's the job of good policy now is to expand the models that work, to put more force, more incentives behind expanding the models that work, particularly where physicians take accountability for total cost of care. One of the five models that proved actuarially to work in CMMI was the AIM program, which provided advanced payments to drive adoption of physician-led ACOs. So you can test models that push participation into the permanent program model. There's great precedent for it. And so I would love to see demonstrations where they provide additional incentives for participation in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Beneficiary incentives, provider incentives. What if beneficiaries had no copays when they went to see their APM-attributed primary care doc, their MSSP-attributed primary care doc? Wouldn't that be great? So now we don't have to worry about the patients facing negative financial ramifications for coming to visit their primary care doc? What if we had the telehealth waivers and payment parity apply to practices who were in alternative payment models, not only those with prospective benchmarks, as is the rules today, but in extending it to those with retrospective benchmarks? What if we created uh, pathways for group reporting in the geographic model, in geographies as part of the test? where there would be virtual groups that report together, essentially creating uh, ACOs by default. Uh, those are some of the ideas that I think are, are super exciting about how you can use CMMI to expand the program, scale the programs that have shown to be effective. What I am not seeing is any questioning as to the direction of aligning the financial incentives of providers, patients, and society in value-based models. Dr. Mustashari, I want to circle back to something you talked about a little bit before, where you, as the former head of the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the ONC's new chief, our good friend, Mickey Tripathi. And he just started in the role yeah. with the Biden administration. And Mickey provided a closing keynote recently at Health Data Palooza National Health Policy Conference. And he discussed how the ONC is taking a different approach than traditional or than previously by outlining what constitutes blocking health information. I'm hoping you can share your perspective on these long-awaited interoperability and information blocking regs from the ONC and how they build on the work you did to promote data sharing and interoperability through the meaningful use program that you were so integral to creating. There's been quite an evolution in thinking across the industry from the initial days of certifying EHRs, adopting EHR technology, and and so I'm hoping you could talk about your recent comment in a modern healthcare article about the relationship of these technical standards and the policy and the business case for interoperability. We really did make real progress in terms of standardizing health information. 
as it's being collected, making it digital, uh, making it so that the vocabularies were standardized, that there was a consistent way of packaging that information, that there were secure ways of transporting that information, clarifying the policies around patient access to their own data and the ability to share information uh, during, during my time. Subsequently, there's been, just in the past few years, uh, tremendous progress. And in particular, I want to highlight one rule change by CMS that all the former national coordinators in an unprecedented joint letter to CMS applauded the strategy of using conditions of participation for Medicare for hospitals as a requirement to share discharge information with community physicians and emergency room visit information. So those admission discharge transfer notifications being a mandatory part of you want to participate in Medicare. It's, it, it's, it's a fantastic. So those are the kinds of, of changes that we now need to get into the implementation phase on where we have the technical capabilities absolutely to exchange information. There needs to be policy clarity, and then there needs to be a drive to actually do it, to prioritize the sharing of, of information. And I think the clarification of uh, penalties for not sharing information, the clarification of these conditions of participation rules, I think those are going to be important steps in, in the right direction. All right, Farzad, I, I, I just have to ask you about Medicare Advantage and, and do a myth buster here for a minute. <laughs> I'm really confused and need your help. <laughs> okay, so Medicare Advantage, you know, our, our listeners all know it has huge implications on health policy, but there is some conflicting information out there. I mean, advocates for MA plans, they're saying you know, they're an area for consumer-centric innovation and health plans are able to offer greater flexibility, more inventive care models. There's more of an emphasis on economic value and unique benefit options, and it's more affordable than traditional fee-for-service coverage. And, you know, Sachin Jane wrote an op-ed in Modern Healthcare in January advocating for Medicare Advantage for All, and he cited data saying that beyond improving on quality measures and avoiding hospitalizations and and having higher rates of preventative screenings, the annual beneficiary costs for Advantage enrollees are about 40% lower than those in traditional Medicare. But conversely, I mean, you and Travis Broom and Sean Cavanaugh wrote an article for Health Affairs in 2019. I mean, it was called Evaluating Medicare Programs Against Saving Taxpayer Dollars. And you posited that MA spending is between 2 to 6% higher than traditional Medicare. And that's consistent with what MedPAC is saying, that MA pays about 1% to 2% more overall than traditional Medicare. So I was hoping, Farzad, you could help us better understand what should we make out of this. Can MA bring about the private sector innovation to Medicare and truly save our system money through the predictability of capitation? Or does the current evidence suggest that MA plans haven't saved a Medicare any money relative to traditional Medicare? And, and to the extent that they do lower costs, the lion's share of those savings, they're flowing to profits to insurance companies instead of really serving the, the value-based care movement. I'd love to hear your insights on this, Farzad, as we look to, to do a, a myth buster on understanding this better. So the evidence is that, yes, it appears that Medicare Advantage plans do a better job of providing beneficiaries with things that they can use, vision, dental, lower premiums uh, for MedSup, 
and in fact, lower utilization of emergency rooms and in some cases hospitalizations. And there's some suggestion that uh, there are some health plans that can actually have that actually have lower mortality rates than a plans. Those are all good things. On the other hand, it is also true that for the taxpayer, it's not free. It doesn't save money when a patient chooses to go to MA. And in fact, it because of the opportunity for increasing revenue for the, the health plans through risk adjustment, the taxpayer pays a little bit more when a patient chooses to go to MA. You can argue, is it worth it, right? The beneficiary is benefiting in, some, in these certain ways. Some of those profits do trickle down in the form of discounts and member beneficiary enhancements. But I think it's a totally legitimate discussion to have to say, well, could the profits for the MA plans be lower and still achieve that benefit? Or at some point, if you tighten up things like the risk coding adjustments, would it make the economic model no longer viable to provide these additional benefits to the beneficiaries? That's the policy discussion. And I think the data is pretty incontrovertible that both things are true and they can provide a place for innovation and better beneficiary incentives and better provider engagement and predictability and pushing for value-based care. And I think it is also true that under the current model, it's, it's a little bit more expensive versus Medicare Shared Savings Program, which is somewhat less expensive. I, I think that is the, the state of discussion. I would say from my perspective, what we want really is to focus on as much of the practices panel as possible should be moving towards risk. And as far as I'm concerned, I love the fact that we can take our practices and provide them with the same tools, the same workflows across all their senior population and now with their commercial population and now also with their Medicaid population. So it's less a question of which one's superior. It's a question of how do we actually get to the point where we can treat every patient the same way, whether they're on Medicare Advantage or not on Medicare Advantage. How can we bring the benefits of these innovative service and delivery models to all patient populations? Farsad, in considering what you've been saying, how we improve outcomes for all, racial disparities in care and health equity have been particularly elevated to a more prominent part of the national dialogue on healthcare. As the COVID-19 pandemic has shown just how dysfunctional our system is in providing equitable outcomes. So I wanted to ask you, how is Allidade looking at this equity imperative to focus your efforts in value-based care to deliver equitable outcomes for everyone, including those that are vulnerable, socioeconomically disadvantaged, and, and those in communities of color? The murder of George Floyd was a reckoning for American society and I think all of us. And it was a reckoning for Allidade. And we believe that we could not be bystanders to this. We can't say, oh, we're doing our thing on population health, and that's just going to help everybody, and that's good enough. And if there's one thing we've learned is that you make change if you focus specifically on the change you wish to make. And what's within our ambit was to say, what change can we make? And we, we set health equity as one of the top five objectives for the company alongside you know, revenue and growth. And the specific health equity target 
we chose to, to focus on, specific, measurable, meaningful, was to reduce racial disparities in severe hypertension. Why that? It seems strangely specific. It's because it is the single greatest source of racial disparities in premature death that we can tackle. And what, when we looked within our own data, we found by and large, there wasn't substantial racial disparity within practices. And in fact, how individual practices by and large, the process measures that they're applying to their white and black and brown people of color are kind of similar in terms of the processes, but the outcomes are different. And we also found that practices who serve majority minority patients face more challenges and have lower performance than practices who don't. And so our strategy is twofold. One, to focus on those majority minority practices. We're creating a program now to encourage onboarding them to, to Allidade. We've done specific outreach now into those communities of physicians, independent physicians, majority minority practices. We want to do more there. And we are paying particular attention to our practices that serve majority minority patients, including the very large number of community health centers that we're working with now in places like Mississippi and Louisiana and uh, Kansas and Utah and West Virginia. And those health centers are incredible parts of the fabric of our country's healthcare system, and we need to serve them better. And then we're doing specific things around blood pressure control, where the rates of severely uncontrolled hypertension is almost twice among Black Medicare patients. So those are some of the things concretely that we're doing. Generally, we like to first do something before we talk about it. So we haven't been you know, out there uh, you know, pounding our chest on what we do around health equity. But uh, since you asked, those are some of the things that we've been working on. Well, Farzad, we've talked about all the great success that Allidate has had. I mean, you've raised $306 million in funding to date. You just closed a Series D round in January for $100 million. I just have to ask you, where, what's, what's the future of Allidate and where are you guys headed now? Thanks. And, and, and also, we're, <laughs> we're now even a positive. Unlike some other folks who are raising a lot of money, we're not burning cash. The model works. I, I think what we believe we have to do is prove worthy of the opportunity, which is another way of saying that it's a responsibility to grow what we do, to touch more practices across more of their patient population. So it means being able to serve every segment of primary care we can, everything from the solo practice, creating a model, we call it Project Solo, creating a model for literally a solo doc to join Allidate and be part of a value-based contract up to large multi-specialty clinics and federally qualified health centers serve that entire gamut of, of primary care and serve every patient within that practice. So we obviously started with the traditional Medicare ACO program, but we now have, I think, more lives not in MSSP than we have in MSSP. We grew our 50,000 Medicare Advantage lives uh, last year, we're going to do more than that this year. That's more than if you're keeping track, you know, more than, you know, some of these other high-flying Medicare Advantage specializing companies. We have now commercial contracts across multiple blues and the all the nationals and fully insured and self-insured businesses. And 
with uh, exchange lives and Medicaid. So the path for us is very clear, is to scale the business, scale our capability to service those practices better and better, serve all their patient populations uh, better and better, and then turn our attention to what more could we do to serve those practices, to help them thrive uh, as independent practices. And if, if we have to get involved for the first time now, we're saying, okay, if we have to help you with credentialing, with recruiting, with uh, revenue cycle management, then gosh, we may need to start up uh, you know, new ventures at Allidate where we help provide those services, not because we see that as, as like a profit center, but because it's what the practices need. Well, Farzada, as we look to end our conversation today, I thought we would circle back on this concept of servant leadership. And it seems like the goal of many leaders is to get people to think more highly of them as an individual. And the goal of a servant leader, however, is really to empower people through the selfless expression of service. And Farzad, you truly have a servant's heart in your work as a leader in the value movement. And for other leaders out there that are listening to this episode, what advice can you provide them about how to approach servanthood to better lead their teams in this race to value? I think it comes across in everything you do. And I think that the smallest things from a culture point of view can add up to a value system that either does or doesn't reflect an authentic sense of service to the practices. My co-founder, Matt and I, you know, we always, just a, it's a little thing, right? But, but like, we're always going to rent the compact car at the car rental place, right? Because any money that we spend on, on that is, don't spend on that is more money that we can plan on to providing service to our practices. It's just the idea that you would, you know, roll into a doctor's office in a fancy car is just like not something that we would ever do. The idea, like some groups like want to change the practice's name to being like, oh, this is a new co-practice. Like, no, we, <laughs> they're the heroes, not, not us. We're the ones who want to do the hard work and love the practice. Don't want to sit in a fancy gleaming conference room with a great view from the hospital or the health plan. We love the log cabin practice three hours outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, where care really is, is happening. All of those things, you know, the, the one thing that'll sure as hell get you fired at Allidade is speaking down to one of our practice partners, like figuring out what is the sum total of the behaviors, attitudes that results in you knowing who you serve and what your job is. That I think is, is a big part of, of that and hiring people who are doing this for the right reasons. I'm honored and, and humbled that you would characterize us as, as being servant leaders because that is to me the highest form of leadership. Well, Farzad, you're truly doing God's work there at Allidade. Thank you so much for sharing your story and joining us today in this race to value. Thank you. This has been an impressively knowledgeable and well-researched interview. 